the topic tonight we decided was being the best of me. Right. Right. Um, you know, the one of the most strongest developed industries in the world today has become an eleven billion dollar industry, the self help industry. You know that? Literally like a ten, eleven billion dollar industry. There are I think forty percent of Americans have either purchased a self-help book, listened to recorded, listened to lectures, gone to lectures, etc., etc. It's a very, very powerful industry. And I've been thinking about it a lot because I enjoy listening to some of the lectures as well. It really bothers me, though, we didn't have this concept of industry of self-help 15, 20 years ago. When I was growing up, for sure, it was, it was non-existent. No, nobody even heard of it. There was no concept. It was like a new term. You had new age of music, and then you had the self-help industry. And it, I was always wondering, like, why did, where did this come from? Why is it that now in the 2000, 21st century, it's such a necessity that's really taken over the world? And not just America, it's really international. Why is you go on YouTube and you punch in any name that self-help gurus and you see all the Tony Robbins and all these famous people and you, you see name after name after name, they different languages. It's an amazing thing what's going on in the world today. The question is what happened, what changed, what, what are we lacking? You know, what, what is self-help? Why do people go to self-help? As the word say, because we can't help ourselves. One, we're unable to help ourselves, so we go to this master, to this guru, to this he or she teacher, who's going to guide us and tell us how we can help ourselves, because we have become incapable, we become somehow emotionally handicapped, that I can no longer figure out how to get through life without someone telling me what I need to do. Without someone inspiring me how to wake up in the morning. Without someone telling me that there's a reason why I need to exercise. There's a reason why I need to go to school. There's a reason why I need to better my career. I'm paying people to tell me what I need to be doing. That's what self-help means. I'm learning how to help myself. That's what, that's what it translates into. So I'm, we've come to a point in, our, in, our, in the history of the world that there's a need for people to instruct people how to breathe. That's what it boils down to. Because helping yourself is the most natural instinct anybody wants to have in, for ourselves. The sense, the, the strength of survival is the strongest sense strength any person has. Any, any, any living creature has, animal or human. We all have that natural strength to survive. We'll overcome so many challenges just to survive. So why is that not true emotionally? What happened in our generation that today we're finding that the people don't know how to survive? They can't go on, they can't move, they can't function until someone tells them what to do. So what, what's happened? Dr. Tversky, famous Dr. Abraham J. Tversky, world-renowned psychologist and author of many books, great lecturer, actually a Hasidic Jew, um, who's a, one of his themes, his primary, his primary uh, theme and primary specialty lies in addiction. And he writes the following. He says that there is a lack, a strong lack of self. And sometimes we, t we are taught to feel inadequate, unable to live up to the tasks given to us. And sometimes we are not provided with tasks to make us feel encouraged that we're capable of doing. There's a lack, he says the, the primary reason why people turn to, to substance abuse, and substance abuse, as we, as we say in the, the world of psychology, in the world of, of mental health, is really called the drug of choice. It could be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be sex, it could be food, it could be so many different options out there. It's called the drug of choice. It makes no difference. It's just a matter of what am I turning to to fill a void in my life? What do I need? Something external that's going to help me internal because I can't do it, I can't provide it myself. What am I lacking? So he says that the primary force of, 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 um, 
of need of addiction, the primary cause for addiction is because there's a lack of self. Lack of self. And there are probably two primary reasons why we're lacking self today. It's either because we are either understimulated or overstimulated. Understimulated means that our parents don't say to us, I need you to get this done. You must take responsibility for this. We are primarily raised on a very, very easy lifestyle of life. And we're primarily raised on things get taken care of us, whether it's cleaning our room for the most part, whether it's a lack of need to really cook a full dinner. We can either go eat at a restaurant, we can pop something into the microwave, we can have some friends cook for us. There are a lot of places that we are able to turn that we no longer need to turn to ourselves to provide for ourselves the basic need of eating because we can have someone else take care of it for us. If parents, if people don't mandate it, if parents don't mandate it, if authorities don't teach our children that we have demands from you, we have expectations from you, there's a very, very poor, subtle message given over to children. And that is that you are not worth my expectation from you. If I don't make demands of you, if I don't say to you, I expect you to reach this goal, I believe that you're able to obtain this objective, if I don't give you that message, if I'm always saying to you, it's okay, we'll take care of it, it's okay, don't, it's not so bad, it's okay, it's okay, it's not okay. Because what ends up happening is I'm pacifying the child, I'm pacifying the person at the moment, but ultimately I'm not learning to care for myself. Ultimately I'm not learning how to strengthen my inner self. Because now I'm being taught that I'm unable to do it. Because if I was able to do it, why would they not ask me to do it? So it must be that children, it must be the child feels that we are receiving a sense that I'm not worth your expectation. And that's the most unhealthy message a person can ever receive. Because the one thing we want to give our children, we want to give our youth, is a sense of value and self-worth. And if we don't provide them by having expectations, then the message, while we think we're making nice to our children, and while we feel that we're making life easy for them, we're making that moment easy for them. But in the long run, we're really cheating them of one of the most important values that a person can ever have, a strength, which we all need to have, the sense, that sense of self. The overstimulation is opposite, not as common, but does exist and has always existed. And that is where we find where parents over-demand and they no longer recognize that they're pushing the child beyond the limit. And this is more of an older school mentality, where when I was a kid, we did this, and when I was growing up, this is how we did things, and there's no reason why you can't stop being so lazy. And in many cases, it's true. In many cases, it's true. Children and people can rise to the occasion. But many times, the message to the person is, you don't really understand me. You don't really care for me, because if you really cared for me, you'd look at what I could or can't do. We don't know sometimes when the people are struggling with inner, internal struggles why they say they can't obtain a certain goal, why they can't function well in this situation, why they're not able to sit well in a classroom, why they can't sit well in the workplace. It's not always so easy to understand that. You know, sometimes when we see people walking around looking healthy and looking safe and looking, and looking functioning, but internally they're really not. You know kids always complain when they want to go from school, they don't want to go to school and say, my stomach hurts. You know why they say my stomach hurts? You know what's the go-to excuse? you can't measure that. There's no thermometer to tell you whether your stomach really hurts or not. The kids know that. <laughs> and the second they figure it out, huh? Oh my goodness, thanks for like calling <laughs> <their> <laughs> <blood>. <laughs> I'm going to say that next. I'm like, oh, you're telling me because there's no way for me to measure that. Exactly right. It's kind of 
percent too. Why? That's like the go-to. It's true. Right? It's so yeah. True. Because it, so because true. you can't what measure that. My stomach doesn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have a headache. Yeah, you know. basically. Take your temperature. See the stomach hurts. How do you measure it? So we see people, and we see that they're functioning, and we, we don't necessarily, so sometimes when we don't tap in, and this is always a hard challenge, because sometimes people, the stomach really does hurt, and, and it's hard to know. And that's the challenge as adults in an authoritative position, to know are we overstimulating the person, meaning are we not connecting to them? And, and then if you get we, that phone call from school. I'm sorry? And then you get that phone, you get that phone call from, from school. school. Right, and maybe from the psychologist. The, <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 but there, there also is a dangerous message to a child that you're not connecting to the child. And, the parent, and right away, a child or youth will say, they don't understand me. They don't understand me, and therefore, I'm not worth being understood. I'm not worth, not, I'm not worth the time to think about my needs. I'm only thinking about what they want. I'm only thinking about what they expect. And that's also a negative message to a child. You know, today there's this, in the, in the religious world, in the orthodox world, there's this quasi-new phenomenon called adults at risk. Has anybody heard that expression before, adults at risk? There's actually been articles written, and, written in the, in the uh, religious magazines. And, you know, we've heard over the last 15, 20 years about, about teens at risk and youth at risk. And about five, maybe seven years, years ago, whatever, it became a, a new concept called adults at risk. Now, most of the adults at risk are people typically in their 40s, 30s or 40s, very rarely is, is above that age. And I began to wonder about that. Why is it? In other words, at risk for what? Yeah, adults, people who are walking away from religiosity, walking away from their, from their values, walking away from their marriages and from their children to pursue more self-indulging lifestyles. They're at risk, just like you have teens at risk for, for religiosity and and maybe possibly drugs. Adults are not typically turning for drugs so much, but they're walking away from their families because they want to have something else in life. And you wonder to yourself, you know, years before that, it was, I'll stay with him, I'll stay with her because that's just better for the kids, I'll stick it out, and, and, right, and America criticized that over the years. Now we've gone to the other point, not, to, not totally to the other extreme, but now we have the phenomenon of, of people saying, I don't care. It's not working for me. It's not good for me. It's not what I want. So, and I think that part of it became historically, you take a look back, in, in, in America, the Jewish America, the Orthodox America, really only developed after World War II. And after World War II, it was right after the war, right when you knew in America, it was the beginning of the state of Israel. America was not necessarily a wealthy country, an affluent country as it was, and surely Jewish America was not particularly wealthy and affluent. Only in the 80s, when, when, when the affluence began to, to, um, to, to, um, to make its way into, into the religious communities, and people began to grow up with a certain, a certain sense of, of, of wealth and, and comfort and having and used to having. And they were, therefore, they were never given a strong inner sense of self because they were given too much. And now, 40 years later, we're seeing the detriment of that, seeing the consequence of that. We're seeing people who are now mature adults and unable and unable to care for themselves, unable to deal with situations, thank you, unable to provide the strength to themselves and therefore to their families, unable to say, this is my reality, this is who I am. And it's not just one or two, because if it was one or two, there would not be magazines articles written about, it would not be called a movement of sorts. And again, a lot of this grows out of a sense where people were never nurtured with a strong sense of self. And I think that's something which has to be focused on. I recently came across a very interesting article. Thank you. Um, very interesting article 
that was discussing why is it this again I don't know how why the study was done but the article is addressing what seems to be a new phenomenon in American culture you have a lot of these cities you hear about this on the news um, a lot of these cities across America who are financially folding small towns in these Midwest America wherever it is and they were dependent on coal or dependent on a certain industry that because of the economical changes and depending on which president and depending on what the economy is and the market and eventually a lot of these markets begin to fall and the whole city falls apart and there's no more funding to supply for most of the people and, and they all have ranches and their schools can't be supported and slowly but surely it, it crumbles from, from within and implodes. And the question was, that was asked by this author, by the journalist was, why are people not moving? Why are people not moving? If you see that things are falling apart, if you see that you're, you're ready, the governor already told you, the mayor told you a year in advance, get out. In this article, they quoted a meeting that one of the people from the town leadership had with his local senator who said, time to move. Do what's best for your family. And people are just not moving. So he writes the following. In recent years, though, Americans have grown less likely to migrate for opportunity. As recently as the early 1990s, 3% of Americans moved across state lines each year. But today, the rate is half that. Fewer Americans moved in 2017 than any year in at least a half a century. That means until 2017, there are more Americans that were willing to take a risk and to move from their local present place of living to try and, search and seek out other opportunities someplace else. This change has caused consultation among economics and pundits who wonder why Americans, especially those lower on the income scale, lack their ancestors, get up and go. Why is this happening? New York Times columnist David Brooks asked in 2014, his answer, a big factor here is a loss in self-confidence. It takes faith to move. We've come to a point. I can Okay. <laughs> you're talking about moving around the corner. <laughs> even that takes a lot of faith. <laughs> and it comes to it comes to a point where even it's been recognized in America and the world around that there is not we don't have the confidence to say this is what I need to do and I'll make it work. You know, I always when we talk about in that book the survivors of the Holocaust and the, the ridiculous level of success they had for people who did not even speak the language of the land that they began to live in. Forget about having an education, forget about having a degree. And most of these people were undegreed and uneducated on a, on a high level in Europe, let alone coming to the States. And yet some of them become multi-millionaires and billionaires, and it, it's, it's astronomical numbers they reach against all odds. And I've always said the reason is because they have nothing to lose. What do you do to me now? You're going to yell at me, you're going to insult me, you're going to brand a number on my arm. What do you do to me? Like, what, were you going to take away my money? You can starve me? What, what, what do I have to lose by trying? And they had so nothing to lose, attitude, literally nothing to lose, because they've been through the hell that, that life can offer. They said, what else, what else am I to do? And they push forward and they, and they forge forward because no, uh, but today we don't have that sense of strength to give it a shot. We're always wondering what about this can happen, what that person's gonna say, and how am I gonna take care of this scenario, and who's gonna take who's gonna cover for that. And we're always asking a million questions why things cannot work out, and would we rather stay in our dire situation knowing that our, our communal and city economics is crumbling around us, I'll stay put, and I'll blame somebody else. I'll stay put and I'll blame the system. I'll stay put and I'll blame the president. I'll stay put and I'll blame the senator. I'll stay put and I'll blame an industry. I'll stay put, but I'm staying put. Again, which makes no sense. Why are you staying put? Because I don't know how to move. 
What am I gonna do the next time? I don't know, what are you doing over here? But it makes no difference because this is what I know and this is all I can do. And the moment you ask me to move out of my comfort zone and move on to something else, that takes inner fortitude and inner strength. And we don't have that. And that's what the New York Times journalist David Brooks wrote, wrote in 2014. And it's the same theory as saying the same thing with people who grew up in, in, the, in the era of, of the at-risk people. They grew up in a time, and most of these people are people who in the 30s and 40s were starting young families who don't have the ability, don't have the economical um, backing to just pick up and move someplace, and they're scared. And they are scared. But it's fascinating how we contrast that to, to, to that in the early 2000s or 1900s, 1990s, that people in the previous generation didn't have that fear as much. It's nervous, it's scary, but they moved. But they moved because they recognized that I have a responsibility, they recognized that I have a need, and they recognized that there's opportunity, and I could possibly make it work, and I, I have to try. But that inner strength to say that I have to try, that inner ability to say, I need to do this, I need to get this done, I need to make this happen, I need to do it, seems to be gone. And it's core on a large scale seems to be gone. And that's what the journalists are saying, not just me. And I think it's a very important concept. And this is why we have this massive industry of self-help. Because people today don't know how to help themselves. And we're lacking that, we seem to lack that tool and that know-how, what it means to to develop a nurturous strength of inner self to be able to move on in life. So I want to bring out two or three ideas, uh, really actually based on this past week's Parsha, Parsha Baloska, that could possibly give us some, some tools a little bit to understand what we need to develop inside ourselves in order to advance ourselves in life and not become dependent on others, but rather become dependent on ourselves. The Parsha, one of the earlier parts of the Parsha talks about the mitzvah of Pesach Sheni. Pesach Sheni means the second Passover, which means that a month after the first Passover, anyone who was impure, this goes back to the time of the Torah, time of the Temple, that anyone who was impure at the time and, un- and unable to participate in the Paschal offering, the Pesach, in the Korban Pesach, was able to have a second chance. And a month later, they can bring, the, they can bring their sacrifice in the Temple and make up for what they missed. We don't have this halacha, we don't have this rule, we don't have this, this, this flexibility in any other, any other law. That a month later you have an opportunity to make up for something you missed a month before because you were unable. We don't find it. And the answer, I believe, is because the, the request that the Jews, this happened already in the times of the desert when they were living when they left Egypt, and the Jews who were unable to create that one and only uh, sacrifice which was offered by the Jewish people in mass, but there were people who were unable because they were impure. They turned to Moses and said to Moshe, and they said to him, Lama Nigora, why should be any worse? Why am I less than the, next, the guy next to me? Why, just because I was either far away from the home or I was impure at the time, I should be considered less of a Jew? I should be considered less of a person? I should be considered unable to participate in this great opportunity, this great mitzvah of offering this one, this very prominent sacrifice to God immediately after the exodus of Egypt? Why should I be any less? Why am I being punished because I was in a state of impurity? The answer normally would be not being punished. But that, that's the consequence. That's what life happens. Sometimes it has. Sometimes life stinks. And sometimes at that moment you are unable to, to participate and it happens. But here the cry that we don't want that answer. That answer is not good enough for now. We, why should we be judged less? Why should we be considered less unless unable to participate in this great sacrifice that the rest of the Jewish people are involved in? I want to be part of it. There's a sense of self, of will, 
That a person says, I am as valuable as the person next to me. I'm as valuable and capable and able as the person who is successful. If he's able to reach that goal, I can reach that goal. And we have to talk ourselves through that scenario and say to ourselves, why am I any worse? Why am I any worse? Why should I be less than that person? Our natural default, especially in our generation, to say, I can't. If they had that opportunity, they were given different skill sets, their parents were wealthier, they had that type of background. And these just said, Lama Nigara, why am I any worse? I don't want to be deemed less. I'm no less than the guy next to me. I happen to have had a temporary lacking at that time. I, I was impure. I was, it was a circumstantial issue that I was away. I, I, was, I was traveling. I was away. I was unable. But consider me less of a person. I was unable to bring that sacrifice to God like the rest of Jewish people. That doesn't work for me. That can't be. That's not true. And therefore, when God heard the cry and the request of the Jewish people saying, Why am I worse? He said, I cannot reject that anymore. Anyone who sees greatness inside themselves, and anyone who sees value of themselves, I will never say no to them. And he made a special law just to accommodate that request of people who said, I don't want to be a second class Jew. You know, many years ago, um, I was the director of a summer camp up in Big Bear, Running Springs, and went into uh, my friend, my, I was with my assistant, I was director of the camp, and my assistant was with me, went into a liquor store to get a drink, to buy a Snapple, that's the truth. And, um, and as we approached the, the, the counter, so, you know, they had this guy, literally, his name was George, it was like a throwback to the 1970s, like the low string, stringy hair and the, and the big glasses and the open, you know, psychedelic shirt. Like he got, he got stuck in running from California in 72, you know, and had him bunk there. <laughs> and he walks up and he, he walks up to pay and he says, hey, are you guys Jewish? Like, Who told you? <laughs> Who told you? Okay, and I'm looking around, did you tell him? So he said, yes, I'm also Jewish. I'm also Jewish. Okay. So we're talking, and he said, you know, I never had a bar mitzvah. I thought, you've been in running since 72. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> you want the Beatles to play for you next? No? So I said, no, George, we're going to make for you a bar mitzvah in the camp. We're going to do it for you. You're going to come down, I'm going to teach you how to make the, bless- the blessing, I'm going to teach you how to make the bracha on the Torah, and, and you're gonna, we're going to celebrate with you a bar mitzvah. I said 100%. I took out his number. This was before cell phones was just really happening. You know, you paid by the minute and by the second, you know, this and that. And emails for sure was, 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 not, was not a reality. Chat rooms was, was pretty cool. And, um, and uh, so he came down and I, and I, you know, I translated for him the bracha and I had written that in English letters and the Hebrew, you know, Hebrew pronunciation. And he comes down and I'm teaching him the blessing and we're working. And he comes down once, he comes down a second time. By that time, I had my wife who come up to Shabbos to bring the beautiful cakes that says, Mazel Tov George and the Bar Mitzvah, enough to feed the whole camp, all, all 16 and a half kids. And, the, um, and he, everything was really excited. And we're talking, and he said, you know, I'm adopted. Oh. See that? Why? Because how do we know he's really Jewish? We know if he's Jewish. So, through very, very impressive detective work, I must admit. It's a very, very impressive detective where we actually somehow managed to track down an aunt of his in Las Vegas. And she says, no, he's not Jewish. Jewish is not born Jewish. Biological parents are not Jewish. It was his woman's brother and sister-in-law who adopted him. And they said they were never religious. They never cared about these things. So, no, he's not Jewish. So now we have this, you know, non-Jewish bar mitzvah boy in a big cake with him. You know, so, um, so I called him up, you know, and you're trying to be the smooth guy that I am. I said to him, you know, 
Yeah, yeah, let's hope I'm missing a little complicated. Why don't you come on down and we're going to have, don't, you know, come on down and we're going to have a whole party. We'll celebrate together, you know. But don't worry about the whole Torah reading thing, you know. Mm. Not that important. More bar than mitzvah, as we say. Okay? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so we, uh, she said, okay, you know, no, thank you. No, no great, no problem. He literally called, literally called back about three minutes later. He said, you know, Rabbi, I really appreciate what you're trying to do for me, but I feel like I'm sec- like the back of a bus Jew. I said, what? That's a great line. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, like, it was a great line. In other words, don't, why should I be worse than anybody else? If I'm Jewish, I'm Jewish. I'm not Jewish, I'm not Jewish. They, but if you're going to consider, if you're going to make, if you're going to have the cake with wishing me mazel tov, then I want to get called up to the Torah as well. And you know, ended up he did not obviously I couldn't bring him to the Torah because he wasn't considered a Jew. Um, unfortunately, he forgot to tell his buddy Mike, the drummer, <laughs> not to come. So Mike, the drummer, came. <laughs> a Shabbos? No, it wasn't Shabbos. It was a day, but, uh, we gave a piece of cake anyway. And uh, <laughs> and but it, it was just, it stuck with me this this line of what it means to have a certain pride in oneself and say, I'm not going to be second class citizen. I don't want to be true. And when God heard that request from the Jewish people of saying, Lama Nigar, why am I worse than anybody else? Why could we not participate in this sacrifice? God said, you got it. I'm going to get you a cake. We're going to have our mitzvah together. Because there's no way that God could turn down that request. So the first concept is to understand within ourselves that we have to have that self-motivation where each person has to say to themselves, why should I be treated worse? Why should I be not be given the opportunity of somebody else? They may have been given another opportunity, but I am not any worse than they are. The moment we, have, we, we, we turn that corner and we have that switch in our minds that say to ourselves, I am as equal as anybody else. Maybe different circumstances. I may have been impure. I may not grown up with the same benefits. I may have been out of town. I may have been, I may have been someplace else. There are many differences in comparison. And all those Jews who are, who are unable to participate in, the, in that offering at that time had all the excuses in the world. And God wasn't upset at them. He wasn't blaming them. He was just saying, you can't participate because of circumstances. You're impure. You're traveling. You're away. No problem. We're good. We're tight. But you can't participate. And they say, that's not good enough. We're not looking for excuses. We're not looking for answers. We're not looking for reasons why we can't. Lamani girl, I never want to be labeled as less than any other Jew. I am not a back of the bus Jew. And that's the first place we have to begin in our lives to understand, say to ourselves, I am never worse than anybody else. No matter what your circumstances are, no matter where you were born, no matter what family you were born into, no matter how you grown up, how you were raised, it makes no difference. It starts from inside ourselves. And this whole self-help industry, like we were talking about before, it's really premised on the fact that we want you to always feel that you need me to help you. Yeah. But don't you think that the, pe- the reason that people sometimes think that way, I mean, they, what, I'm basically asking, what is it that you have, that you're offering as the reason to why, whatever are, it is that they think is, they're less than, let's what say, did the Jews, why what, is that what, not did, true? what did Jews in the desert say? What was their reason? That they are just as Jewish and just as... Right. That's it. But I'm saying the people who think low of themselves think they have valid, quote-unquote, reasons why they're thinking And that's my point. And they, and they, and they believe those reasons. Correct. Like, so that's a choice. That's like, a choice. Simply because I'm Jewish, so all those other things go out the window? Or, or, simply because I'm Jewish, simply because I'm a person, simply because I'm functioning, simply because I have abilities, simply because I have talents. I, I, I make my choices in my life to determine whether I'm going to fall short because of my inabilities or my lackings or to go into forge forward because of my capabilities and what I could do. That's your choice. No one telling you how to react and respond to your situation. 
It's up to you. No one tells you how to how to play the card that you dealt. I can't determine the hand that you dealt, but you're the one who plays it. And that was the response of the people. They were saying, it's not a matter of fair or not fair. It's not a matter of makes it doesn't make sense. I was just literally speaking to a person recently, a very very fine scholar, and um, he was telling me about the very troubling home he was raised in, and what a horrific person, his, what horrific people his parents were, and, and specifically his father. He once saw his father beat up a, an African-American woman, think about the 50s and 60s, because she, he felt that she had no right to be where they were, you know, the, the segregation times. And, and he literally saw his father beat that person up and throw her out. In the house that he was raised in, zero connection. He's a tremendous scholar. He's, a, he's, a, he's raising a beautiful family. He's, he's an exceptional person. He made a choice. He could have succumbed to that lifestyle. He could have succumbed to that, to that upbringing. He could have said, hey, I was raised like that. I can't be like that. So we have to make choices in our lives. And I'm not saying it's an easy decision. And I understand when you're raised in certain, with certain um, environments and you know, certain morals, it's hard to see. But we have the choice. We have the choice to look out of, beyond ourselves and say, I can be that person. Why am I any worse? Why am I any worse? And that's where it comes from. That's where it comes from. It's only because we're so being used to pandering, being told what's okay, it's not your fault. Mamala, it's, it's, it's okay. You know, really, it happens. And don't worry about it. Just move on. Don't, you know. You know sometimes you have to push yourself a little bit more. Sometimes we have to say to ourselves, why am I any worse? Why do, why do I want to live less than anybody else? That's the question you have to ask yourself. That's only you can control that answer. That's where it stems from. The next point. A similar point, but slightly different. In the partial, we talked about the travels of the Jewish people. And as they were traveling, one of the interesting primary roles of the travels was the trumpets that were blown. To determine when we're traveling, when we're settling, that's fine. But the way that the Talmud, that the sages describe it, is the following. It said the Jewish people traveled based on three criterion. God, Moses, and the trumpets. Trumpets. You know, I just came back from, uh, I was back-to-back, two weeks back-to-back traveling with students. The first week was the day after Shavuos. I left the next morning, took 24 seniors to Big Bear by myself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm I'm being um, psychiatrically treated presently. (laughs) Um, The next, then I came home for Shabbos, but then we had I had Scotland residence that week in my shul, and then then two days later we were off with a school-wide trip of uh, with other staff members this time for four days to Utah. Okay. Wow. And every time, and every time we traveled, and every time we went, you know, you obviously have to do one important thing: that's take roll call. Now, anytime you make a stop, anytime you get back on, you're always checking, taking roll call, making sure, making sure, right? So really what happens, you get onto the, the, the microphone of the bus, you, you scream the last thing you can over the background traffic, hey, yo, Mike, Yaakov, Moshe, here, here, and they never, they never say here, they were like, nod their head. That's gonna, that's gonna help me a lot, right? <laughs> okay, so, you know, so to me, 
putting getting on that megaphone, getting on the microphone, raising my voice is nothing but just a a way, a conduit, a vehicle for me to make sure everyone is here. You tell me you're traveling by the word of God, I get it. You tell me you're traveling by the word of, of, of Moshe, I get it. The authority, the, Im- the implementer, I understand. But what such value did the Chatzosos have? I'll tell you something even more fascinating. The sages tell us that the trumpets that were used in the desert were not passed down from generation to generation. Most of the things that are sacred to Jewish people, most vessels are always generational. If it's from the, if it's from the, the tabernacle, from the Mishkan, from the Beis Hamikdash, we pass them down. We pass down the Luchos, we pass down the Aron, we pass down the Menorah, we take the tabernacle with us, we travel from the desert into Israel, from one place to another place. We, these things get passed down from generation to generation. But the trumpets, the sages say, had to stay in. When Moses died, they got buried in the desert. What's wrong? So I think the idea is like this. We know that the chatzos, the trumpets, are similar to the shofar. The shofar, as explained based on Kabbalistic terminology, is that it expresses an internal expression. You take your breath from inside and you blow through that vehicle called the trumpet, called the shofar, and that creates a sound externally. But that sound which is created externally really is coming from the breath which comes inside of you. The chatzosos represents the defi- definition of each person of who they are. The reason why you cannot pass down the trumpets of Moshe to the next generation, to Yoshua, to Joshua, to any other sub- uh, subsequent leader, is because then it would not be their personal blast. Those trumpets were during Moshe's era of leadership. You are the new era, you are the new leadership. You have to create your own blast. You have to create your own trumpets that's going to guide the Jewish people. Every person has to represent themselves and has to define themselves. And the reason why it said that we travel based on God, Moses, and the trumpet, because the trumpets represent the individual internal force of every single person. God gives us the authority, direction, Moses implements, and the Chatzotras represents the Jewish people as they travel. And every Jew had to hear the sound of that, the sound of that trumpet and had to reflect upon it and say, I'm hearing that sound and it helps, it helps resonate in me. It helps stir inside of me. Now is the time that I need to feel the need to travel. Now is the time that I need to feel the time to camp. It's not only because I'm being directed, but it also represents how I feel about it. And the problem is that most times in life, we don't define ourselves for who we are. We don't define ourselves that it's me making this decision, me participating, but we come like sheep following the herd. And this is what's done, this is what I'm going to do. And because this is what's popular, this is what makes sense to me to do. And it's not the right way. I'm not saying it's wrong to always follow like that, but it's definitely not right to always follow like that. And most of us go through life undefined from within ourselves. If you have to say to yourself, what is the blast that you want to create? What sound defines you? What, what concept defines you? What do you represent? What's valuable to you? Well, take back and step and think. Say it's a good question. Well, what is what's important to me? In my spouse, in my children, in my job, in my life, in my career, in my daily involvement. What's what defines me? What's my make it or break it in life? What are the things in life that say to me, "This is who I am"? What's my trumpet of life that expresses my sound? And the reason why we again we turn to other people for help or other. Of substances for help is because we're not always so defined. We don't take the time to think about who am I, what are my core values, what do I stand for, what's not important to me. And you know what? When you figure that out, you'll see life becomes much simpler. 
Because when you are defined, you will realize that many conversations you're engaging don't interest you anymore. The reason why we sit and waste our time listening to conversations, participating in conversations about other people, about other things, so much because we're not defined within ourselves. How can a person who's so clearly defined of who they are and what their values are waste their time following people on Instagram? I'm sorry. How could you waste your time listening to other boys' stories and histories on Snapchat? Really? I have nothing better to do but spend an hour or a half hour or blurbs of 10 minutes every, every half hour of looking what someone else is doing with their life? I really, I'm not, I'm so undefined that I need someone else's entertainment, someone else's what they're having for lunch to tell me how I should feel? It's out of control. It's absolutely out of control. And but we've gotten so accustomed to it that we don't see anything wrong with it anymore. But of course, I want to see. I want to see. Oh, these how cute! My cousin's niece's brother. Oh, adorable! Really? You wouldn't know kids. You don't know the kids' name. You wouldn't like you know if they pass on the street. You would know. They're all of a sudden, it's so so adorable. Every move that the kid makes has to be publicized. Everything that your friend's eating has to be known. Every place they went. Who cares? And the reason why we don't care is because we're not. We don't like. We don't figure out what's important to me, like what do I do with my day, who am I, what's my mission, what's my purpose, what's, what, what am I, I'm not saying no, not to socialize, I'm not saying not to interact with people, but to have a definition, say, really, that has no interest to me right now. You know why? Because I'm a defined person, and I have things to do with that definition. And the reason why we're so quick to waste time on other things and other people is we're looking around for other people to help us define us, what's important to us, what entertains us, where do we go with the next step. And that's a big lacking. The last point I want to focus on is the idea was talked but was mentioned by the menorah, not directly in the Torah, but in the menorah, what's that discussed in our sages. We know that the menorah in the, in the is 18 Tzvachim high, which is around five and a half feet or so. Now, there's also the Torah tells us that there were steps in front of the menorah. I'm not sure exactly how many, one or three, but the accepted understanding is three. Now, five and a half feet is really not that tall. Okay, it's really not that high of a menorah. The average Kohen could, could light it, raising his hand straight up. If he's a little bit short, he could bring him a step stool to, to it. You don't need to have permanent three steps in front of the menorah always as part of the structure to ensure <coughs> that the Kohen who lights the menorah can light the menorah properly. It's, it, was, it, it was unnecessary. It didn't make sense in the structure what the menorah is. And I believe the answer is teaching us a very important concept. And that is that one of, the, one of the requirements when lighting the menorah was that it was the cause that the person who lit the menorah had to hold the candle to a way where the light itself was lighting itself. And that light, as we know, was not meant to serve the temple. That light was meant to be expressed to the world outside of us. The only way that a person can be capable of giving light onto others is when they themselves elevate, elevate themselves as well. To walk up to the menorah and just light it yourself without showing that you yourself have developed and nurtured your inner self, then you are unworthy yet of, of passing the light onto others. I was actually reading an article um, about self-help. It was very fascinating. This person, this woman, well, became a self-help guru in the world of helping people organize their careers. And she wrote, and her, article, her, her whole article is based on the fact that most people who are these gurus and mentors are lacking themselves. And she spoke about her own history of how full she was, how unable she was, how inundated she was, how disorganized she was. And here she was, that people come over to her advice and she gave them the right answers. And then she wrote books and she had lectures and speakers. And she wrote that she began to get overwhelmed and she was not so organized. 
And she realized that it, it wasn't really true. And mostly people just had a, a talent or a gift to speak out certain ideas and to give it over, but doesn't mean they themselves were, that, were actually that capable. She, she wrote in the article that she, the first inkling she had of this, of this eye-opening revelation, that many, I'm not saying all of them, but many of these people are not really who you think they are, was that she once overheard a guy who was, who was um, speaking prior to her, and he turned to the, I guess, from the organizer of the event and said, hey, do my pants make me look fat or not? So here's this guy who's telling everyone don't worry about anything, it's all about you and who you are, and you have to feel good about yourself, and don't worry about other people think about you, and you blah, blah, blah. How did the khakis look? Right? And she said, whoa. You mean he's also a person just like me, he cares just like me, so what, why is he talking to me? I could be talking to him for the same, for the same money. And she realized that it's, it's not really real. And the people who are, who are gifted orators and be able to, to give over these skill sets are not really real. And, and you know, we see this ourselves when, when we have this great tzaddikim, you recognize the righteous and the holy and the pure amongst us, and you see how real it is, you, you, you feel the presence of the reality. You recognize that it's, it's deep and it's real and, and it's there. So the Torah is telling us that in order to give over light to something else, you have to prepare yourself. But I want to take one more point, and that is that in part of growth is not just to elevate yourself to teach others, but part of growth is to want to co- contribute, to contribute to the community, to want to give to others. If a person becomes only about themselves, only about defining themselves, only about self-helping themselves, then that itself is a lacking. Only when you're ready to climb the steps of the menorah and light and kindle the flame in order to give light to other people, then you are nurturing your inner self as well. Because that's part of growth. And when we don't, we have not, when we've been unable to develop that sense of self, I'm, un, I'm able to give to others. And just like candles and light, you can take from one flame to another flame to a thousand flames, it will never diminish that flame. So too, when you give to other people, it never diminishes from who you are. It only makes you stronger. And even sometimes it's a challenging situation, and sometimes you have to give up to let other people benefit from you. But that's okay, because that's, that's nurturing inside of you a, a strength. I remember, and we'll finish with this, my, when my rabbi's wives were telling me that when they first started the yeshiva in the, probably in the 50s or 60s, I remember, and, um, and there was a certain rabbi who had his own yeshiva in that area. But this new yeshiva was starting, and this second rabbi instructed one of his wealthy supporters to give money to this new yeshiva to help them. He's a big rabbi, and he needs to help, help him. Where do you find it today that a guy who's fundraising to support his own institution is in turn to one of his main supporters and say, Help him also. Don't worry about my month's check. Just give it to him and I'll, I'll figure it out. It, it, it's unbelievable. Because his sense of self was so strong and his, and his confidence and his ability to do what he needed to do was so strong and his faith in God was so strong. He said, it's my turn to contrib- contribute to the community, help somebody else who, who's in the same position that I am. And when we can give like that graciously, not just give because it's meant to do, or to, you know, it's accepted that just we're supposed to be involved in communal service, or because that's what everyone expects for me to do, because I really, that alleviates some of my own guilt about not doing things, but do because I really feel that within myself, part of my responsibility in life is to help others. And when you get to that point that you recognize and feel that, understand as a human, that our God-given responsibility is to climb the steps of that manure and to kindle that flame to help other people, that's a great step and a great advancement in, in, our, in our self-growth. So I think these are three simple ideas of what, how we can advance ourselves within ourselves. One is to have a sense of self, like we spoke about. 
Uh, why should I be less than anybody else? One is to have a definition of what's your inner breath, who are you from within, and third is the ability to have your strength to help and keep the others. God willing, we should all find our inner strength and definitions Amen. and grow from strength to strength. Amen. Amen. Any questions or comments? Otherwise. Does anyone have any questions for Rav Brahma? Because this is a special opportunity. Everything, everything, everything's answered. No questions. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm passing around my <coughs> the big move paper over here. If people would be willing to sign, I can give you a little time sometime between now and Friday. Thank you. 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 I'm sorry that we made a shot. Thank you. Next time, Mr. Chairman, we'll make sure that we have one of you. Thank you very much. Thank you.